What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Have you got a question, maybe two questions about the Catholic faith, and they just can't get those questions answered in the usual way? Well, we can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Kuwait, uh, you would not. You would dial... Uh, the area country code, which is one for the U.S., and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for the program. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both of those great platforms right now. Just put your question that you have in the comments box, if you would, and then uh, Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can get your question answered on today's program. Again, uh, 833-288-EWTN. If you're watching us on TV today, the email address ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, hope you're doing well. I take it we're up to K today. K is the letter, yes. Yes, So that would be Kuwait. Kuwait, Yesterday was J and that was, I think, Jamaica or Japan. Will we go for Lithuania tomorrow? There's only one way to find out. All right, very good. Here is an interesting objection that I've never seen. This is from Beth, who says, Catholicism is incompatible with Christianity because the Catholic Church refuses to submit to the authority of God's Word and embrace the gospel of justification. What say you? Yeah, okay, thanks. So several claims here. Uh, One, Catholicism incompatible with Christianity. Two, doesn't submit to God's Word. Three, won't acknowledge the gospel of justification. All right, let's take the last one first, because I think that's really what the hang-up is all about. I think so. You know, Martin Luther uh, is reputed to have said, although this is actually spurious uh, uh, ascription, but he was reputed to have said that the doctrine of justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. No, those words didn't come out of Luther's mouth. That was consistent with his sentiment, right, that... that uh, that everything else could go by the wayside, but this thing about justification by faith, that was really where the rubber met the, met the road. He once said that if uh, if the Pope would acknowledge his doctrine of justification by faith alone, that he would get down and, and kiss the Pope's feet if the Pope would do that. Um, he wrote to Erasmus of Rotterdam that, that indulgences and papacy and purgatory and the like were, and I quote Luther, mere trifle, trifles not worthy of debate in comparison to this issue of the nature of salvation mm. that's fundamental to the doctrine of justification. So the, 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 the Lutheran position is the following, that when St. Paul says in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians that a man is justified by faith and not by works of the law, the way Luther understands that is that nothing about the quality of your moral life has any effect on God declaring that you're just or not. That it's not God's declaration of justice has no connection to the actual content of your moral behavior. Luther, in the commentary on Galatians, said, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. 
Nothing intrinsic to you or your behavior elicits God's positive response. That was the way Luther interpreted that verse. Now, the Catholic position is that Luther is absolutely not faithful to the Bible or to the Bible's doctrine of justification. So the other two charges I'm going to reject. Catholics do submit to the Word of God. It's because we submit to the Word of God that we must reject Luther's doctrine. Mm. Because, see, Luther profoundly misunderstood the teaching of St. Paul. When Paul says that a man is justified by faith and not by works of the law, the ergo namu in Greek, that's works of the law, he tells us exactly what he's talking about. What are these works of the law of which he speaks? They are those things that separate Jew from Gentile. They are things like the laws of kashrut and circumcision and uh, all the rest of it, the ceremonial uh, law, the, th- the aspects of the Mosaic Code that would mark out a Jew as a Jew as distinct from a Gentile. Okay. Rather, what Paul says is that when you believe Christ, the love of God is poured into your heart, Romans 5, 5. Your heart is changed. You're given a new heart. And with the gift of the Spirit having circumcised your heart, you now fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, the dikaiomata to namu in Greek, Things like love and justice and peace and patience and kindness, goodness and mercy, etc., flow from your innermost being, and therefore God can say to you, truly, well done, good and faithful servant. Romans 2.13 says it's not hearing the law, rather it's obeying the law by which we will be declared righteous. That is the Catholic position. We need grace, we need faith, because by these things God works an actual moral change in our hearts. We're not justified by faith alone, we're justified through faith insofar as God uses that as the medium to transform our moral lives. That's the consistent teaching of the entire Bible to which we completely submit. We have to reject Luther because he rejects the teaching of the Bible. It's not only Catholics that hold this position. The Protestant scholar Alistair McGrath, who wrote probably the, the definitive English language history of the doctrine of justification, admits that Luther's doctrine was a complete theological novelty made up in the 16th century by a disaffected Augustinian hermit monk, namely Martin Luther, with no precedent anywhere in the Christian tradition before then. East, West, Catholic, Orthodox, you name it, nobody ever thought that Paul said what Luther thought he said until Luther came up with that very idiosyncratic reading, uh, because uh, it's just Luther's brainchild of his uh, you know, febrile imagination mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. the teaching of Paul. We are under no obligation to accept it. Well, there we go. Beth, thanks so much for your email. Here is a fantastic email from Laura. Just three words here, David. What is prayer? You know, I wish I could have uh, Therese of Lisieux's definition at my fingertips, the one they give in the catechism. It's a surge yeah. of the heart, a, 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 a cry uh, uttered toward heaven, embracing both trial and joy, something to that effect. That was the way Therese—I've mangled it, I'm sure, but it was the essence of prayer is communion with God, and uh, it, it need not— contain any specific words. It is the disposition of the soul to of, of openness to God and receptivity to him that may very well pour forth in abundant speech, uh, or maybe merely in a sigh and a longing and a look towards heaven. Mm, beautiful. Well, uh, Laura, thank you so much for actually your profound question there. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, phone lines are open if you have uh, a question for Dr. David Andrews. Love to talk with you today at 833 833- 288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV today, your best bet is to shoot us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Back in just a moment with lots more. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews. Do stay with us.
Glad you're with us for EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Kurt, a first-time caller in Washington State, and I believe they're listening on the EWTN app. Yes, that is correct. Uh, Kurt, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, I have a question about today's reading, Um, uh, the first reading uh, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and uh, he says something that I've never noticed before. That uh, that seems to be um, it kind of goes against my intuition, I guess. Um, talks about the uh, uh, the mystery hidden from ages past in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the principalities and authorities in the heavens. And I didn't think that's where that sentence was going to go. I thought the sentence was going to be that, you know, it would be made known to something down here on earth rather than something up in the heavens. That's my question. Why Why that wording? Yeah, thanks. Because there is, Paul's view is the principalities and powers are the angelic and demonic hosts, and that part of the purpose of redemption is to display God's victory and triumph to the whole cosmos, including those angelic and demonic powers. Uh And in fact, a significant dimension of redemption is putting the evil powers and principalities, um, uh, triumphing over them in a kind of uh, display, a sort of triumphant display of humiliation. Um, Paul writes in, um, in Colossians, that uh, he disarmed, this was by the death of Christ, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of of them triumphing over them in him. And you kind of have the image of, you know, think about the uh, the ancient warlord who, who wasn't content merely to conquer the enemy, but he had to make the enemy general, you know, lie down and, and submit to having his neck stepped on, that sort of thing. That, that's the image that we have in sacred mm-hmm. scripture. And mm-hmm. the, the resurrection of Jesus is understood to be that kind of triumphal display, demonstrating his victory over the evil power that is death. But there is also something else going on in this particular passage, and, and that is that the, the, the mystery made known that he's talking about, that is this display before the powers and principalities, is a very specific thing. It is, it is that the Gentiles are co-heirs with Israel. So when he says that um, the manifold wisdom should be made known um, that was previously hidden in Christ, it was this revelation that the Gentiles are now co-heirs with Israel apart from the Mosaic law. That's the thing that nobody knew. That was the great mystery revealed in Jesus. Uh, St. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that even angels long to look into these things, which suggests that the angelic hosts did not know the plan of redemption in detail, <clears throat> that they're, they're spectators like we are, and they're going, wow, I wasn't expecting that. He pulled that one right out of the hat, you know? <clears throat> okay. Well, there you go. Is that helpful for you, Kurt? Perfect. All right. Appreciate your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you would like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, talking to all you uh, non-Catholics out there, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Uh, Again, the number is 833-288-EWTN. 
EWTN. Here is Steve now in Florida, listening on the great Divine Mercy Radio. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, good morning, uh, or good afternoon. Uh, the uh, Many times over my life I have heard the different prayers, that, like the Nicene Creed, etc., uh, that uh, says, you know, that uh, Christ descended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, and he shall come again. Um, yet, you know, we know that Christ is present, you know, in the Eucharist, the consecrated Eucharist. We know that, you know, where two or more are praying, you know, he's present, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, as from a child on to now, I still uh, question, why is it that we, you know, sort of say he's exclusively in heaven, or and at the same time he's everywhere present. Uh, you know, he's yeah. a spiritual being, right? Spiritual That's right. Being, yeah, so. great question. I can totally answer that. I really appreciate it. So this points to the fact that that Christ uh, enjoys various modes of presence, and and this is something. That, I mean, we don't have the same modes of presence as Jesus, but but human beings also enjoy different modes of presence. So, for example, I'm present to you right <laughs> now, Steve, but not in the same way that I'm present to Tom Price. I'm present to you through the airwaves and through the internet and our conversation, and that's we're really present to one another, but but we're at some physical distance. Whereas Tom and I are right across from one another, and I could I could throw a cream pie and hit him right in the face if I had one <laughs> handy, you know, where I couldn't do that too. It's different modes of presence. There are also different modes of presence that we can that we can predicate of Jesus. So um, first of all, there is Christ's bodily presence. Uh, the 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 flesh that was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary and walked on planet Earth two thousand years ago uh, was not ubiquitous, right? When he was in Galilee, he wasn't in Jerusalem. When he was in Jerusalem, he wasn't in Galilee. Mm-hmm. And so, when we talk about Christ ascending into heaven, we're talking about the physical body of Jesus getting up, walking out of the tomb, and ascending to heaven. Uh, when we talk about Christ descending to the dead, here we're talking about his human soul. Because being a human being, Christ had a human soul. And the human soul, again, is not is not omnipresent. My soul is not, you know, someplace on the other side of the galaxy. It's lodged right here in my body. And when I die, my soul will be separated from my body. And we can talk about a relationship of soul to body being being severed. And you could say that about the soul of Christ and his physical body when he died. Uh, but when we talk about the divinity, because Christ is also God, then we're talking about a nature that is eternal and simple and indivisible and omnipresent and, and immense and all those other attributes. And he's in heaven and hell and Alpha Centauri and, you know, he even goes to Auburn games, you know, I mean, in that respect. <laughs> he's everywhere, right? Um, and uh, But Christ has these two natures. Now, uh, there's another mode of presence we can talk about, and that is the, the sacramental mode, the mode that he's present in the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, this is a unique mode. It's not like your normal physical presence, nor is it uh, ubiquity. It is what we call the substantial presence of Christ's body and blood. And substantial presence and physical presence are not the same. Tom Price is physically present to me right now, and I, I can see all of his dimensionality, his, his height, his width, his, I can estimate his weight, you know, his color, uh, his, uh, his density, all of those properties are present to me. That's physical presence. That's not what we say about Jesus in the Eucharist. We say substantial presence. Uh, it's the substance of Christ's body and blood, but but abstracted from all those other physical properties like dimensionality, quantity, you mm-hmm. know, weight, height, color, taste, smell, all those things are absent. That's obviously a very distinct mode of presence. Another interesting thing about Christ's real presence, sacramental presence in the Eucharist, is that uh, he can be present in that way 
in more than one place at one time, but without actually being ubiquitous. So the Blessed Sacrament can be in the tabernacle both in Birmingham and Timbuktu, and yet it's not someplace where there isn't a consecrated host. Fascinating. Appreciate that. Steve, thanks so much for your call. It's called to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, a great time to call is right now, 833-288-3986. Let's go to uh, Joe now in uh, Long Long Island, on the Long Island, New York, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Joe. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yeah, hey, uh, good afternoon. Uh, thank you very, very much for taking my call. My question has to do with the differences in between the way the uh, Catholics and the Protestants read the Bible. Um, very important. Um, second question, real quick, is uh, you can you give a, a succinct definition of theology? Sure. Let me do the second one first, because it's easiest. Theology is the attempt to give a rational, coherent <clears throat> account of divine revelation. It's, it's reflecting on the features of the Christian faith that have been revealed by God, but in a way that attempts to, that t- attempts to bring faith and reason into harmony, sort of give a rational account of divine revelation. That's, that's the discipline of theology. It's, it's multifaceted, <clears throat> many different areas of theology, uh, but all of them have that that in common. Okay. Now, uh, the way that Protestants and Catholics read the Bible, they do read the Bible very differently. So the first major difference between Protestants and Catholics with respect to Holy Scripture is that Protestants regard the Bible as the Church's rule of faith, meaning they think that God gave us the Bible to be a sufficient guide to all theological and moral and practical questions about Christian life. And if you can't find it in the Bible, then it's not morally or theologically relevant. If it's in the Bible, then it is relevant. If it's not there, it's irrelevant. And that's the function and purpose of the Bible. Catholics don't think that that's why God gave us the Bible. We do think God gave us the Bible. We think it's a divine book, it's divinely authoritative, but he didn't give it to us as a rule of faith. And so that makes a profound difference in how you're going to interpret it. Now, I've used this illustration many times. If I, if I handed you the user's manual for my Toyota Camry, and I said, here, this will tell you how to make a lemon meringue pie. Right? Well, first of all, you're going to have a hard time discerning how to make a lemon meringue pie from my, from my Toyota Camry user's manual. But if you, if you approach the book with the conviction that it really will tell me how to make a lemon meringue pie, you're going to have to engage in some pretty tortured logic to tease that information out of the text. And I think that's the dilemma that Protestants have when they approach the Bible. If they approach the Bible as a rule of faith, which is what their tradition tells them to do, they have to involve themselves in some fairly tortured exercises that I think will ultimately distort rather than clarify the meaning of the Bible. Um, Because Catholics don't approach the Bible that way, they, they don't have that problem. Now, they're, not all Protestants are the same, and so I, I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. But um, there is a pervasive tendency in a lot of Protestantism to treat the Bible as if the texts were uh, clearly understandable. There's a, there's a doctrine in Protestantism, especially Presbyterianism, called perspicacity or perspicuity of the Bible, mm. which means that they think the Bible is clear in what it says 
at least as it regards the, as they would understand it, the essentials of the faith, and that a you know person of of goodwill and and faith and gifted by the Holy Spirit uh, can approach the text and understand sufficiently what they need to be saved, and um, and sometimes that belief in perspicuity reduces, not always, but sometimes it reduces to a kind of bare literalism. And this is especially the true in fundamentalism. You know, the idea that the the plain sense of the text, the denotative sense of the text, the way the man on the street would understand a sentence taken out of context, that that's the way you read the Bible. And so uh, there's a famous Protestant American theologian from the 19th century named Charles Hodge. And uh, Hodge likened biblical study to empirical science in this respect. He was a Baconian with respect to science, and he thought the way you did science was to just gather a bunch of discrete facts and then try to arrange them into a kind of coherent order. And he thought that's what you did with the Bible, that you would go through the Bible and literally add up the propositional statements of the Bible. Yeah. And then, and then your job, you know, was like some sort of Lego puzzle, was to arrange them into a systematic order, and voila, you've done systematic theology. Wow. Right? Um, and there's a lot of Protestants that think the, the, the way you read the Bible is you read it as a collection of distinct propositions that each says something that's inerrantly true, and you have to work it into a system. That you could not be farther from the Catholic way of reading the Bible. Catholics think that the Bible is a very layered and nuanced text— there's an overall story arc, and the, the story arc culminates in the incarnation, the person of Jesus, and the purpose of reading the text ultimately is not just propositional information, but is personal transformation, where the reader is changed by the text so that he comes to see the world through Christ's eyes. And far from reading the individual sentences of Scripture all sort of on a level as if they, they gave undifferentiated propositional truth, we think that the literal sense of the text points to, it is always transcended by a spiritual reading of the text, it's that reading of the text that's transformative and moves us into union with Christ. And there are more nuances than that, but that's the basic idea. So there are, there are texts specifically in the Old Testament that a Catholic never takes at face value, never takes at face value, because we understand that their, their meaning, their significance for the life of the Church can only be understood in light of the, the final culmination in the person of Jesus. And, of course, we don't regard the text as a rule of faith. And so we're able to let, say, something like the Book of Psalms, which is clearly not a manual on fixing your Toyota Camry, <laughs> we're able to let the Book of Psalms be what it is, which is a, a psalm or a psalm book, right? <laughs> which we read allegorically as, a, as indicating... Uh, our union with Jesus. And so lots and lots of profound differences between the two traditions on how they approach the Bible. Joe, thanks so much for your call from Long Island. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Matthew's watching us on YouTube today. Matthew says, why was the letter to the Hebrews considered for removal by the Protestant reformers? Yeah, well, most Protestant reformers did not want to get rid of Hebrews, uh-huh. but the the, um, the the book of Hebrews was in the epilegumina of the New Testament. These are the disputed texts of the New Testament in Christian antiquity. So if you, you go back to the first four centuries when there were debates about which biblical texts should be included in the New Testament, sometimes Hebrews was uh, was uh, was held in doubt because it's anonymous, and, and uh, the ancient fathers weren't sure that it was of apostolic origin, and that was one of their criteria for canonicity. Did this book come to us from an apostle or from the known associate of an apostle. And because Hebrews was an anonymous text, they weren't so sure about it. 
Okay. Well, there it is. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for your question. Glad that you're watching us today on YouTube. In a moment, we're going to uh, go back to the phones and talk with Mark in Houston, listening to us on Sirius XM Channel 130. A great time for you to call. We still have a half hour to go here of Call to Communion on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- 288-3986. If you're watching us on EWTN television today, you're welcome to shoot us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Back in a flash with lots more, call to communion. Do stay with us. So what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about that here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Still time for you to call in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Let's go to Mark now uh, in Houston, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Mark. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, good afternoon, all. Um, quick, Actually, two quick questions. Uh, recently back to the church, thank God. And um, one of my friends is a former Methodist minister. He's a really good man, and he's now an atheist. And he is is a very learned man. He's getting a Ph.D. currently in another area. And his whole um, belief is there's no evidence whatsoever that not only was Jesus alive, but crucified. And he has studied papyrusology. He knows that Mark was likely the first uh, gospel written. Corinthians was obviously very early on. But I wanted to ask Dr. Andrews, he's a very learned man, and he, what what can I do to help him towards answering this question about the historical evidence for Jesus outside of accounts written by, you know, obviously Paul, of course, Paul never met Christ, but Peter, Mark, etc. And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. So I, I understand that there are some odd ducks out there that deny that the person of Jesus existed. I understand that that is a position that some people hold. It is a very minority position. And it is this is not something that is just an a issue of believers and non-believers. I mean, I, I've, I've mentioned before on the show... Um, you know, a pretty well-known biblical scholar, very famous, popular biblical scholar in North America, who uh, who is very open about his atheism and his rejection of the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity or the inspiration of the Bible, and that would be Bart Ehrman. Right? He's just he's like no fan of traditional Christianity at all, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, he's a a major opponent of this idea that there was no historical Jesus. I mean, he's made his career talking about who he thinks the historical Jesus was, and his picture is not the Orthodox Christian picture by any means, but, you know, it's predicated on the idea that there's an historical reality there that a scholar could get to in, in historical research. Okay. And so I just I pull him out just as an illustration that mm-hmm. even skeptical or antagonistic historians don't uh, don't go in for this idea that there was no Jesus. And, and the reason why is the evidence for the existence of Jesus is overwhelming. Now, to begin with, it makes no sense at all to reject the New Testament evidence for the existence of Jesus. There's no sense to do that at all. I mean, you don't have to believe the New Testament. You don't have to think it's a divine authority. But it's absolutely an historical witness. 
Sure. And and the New Testament doesn't all the New Testament books don't say the same thing about Jesus. They're they're independent witnesses to the historical reality of a person called Jesus of Nazareth. There are uh, extra biblical uh, discussions of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. We can find them in in the Jewish historian Josephus. We can find them in uh, in uh, uh, the letter of Pliny the Younger to the emperor. Trajan, we can find them in uh, in Tacitus. Uh, so I mean, we we do have we can find them in the Talmud, for that matter, in the Jewish Talmud. So there there are Jewish and pagan and Roman uh, mentions of the person of Jesus. Then also there is the the blindingly obvious fact of the origin of the Christian Church, which did not just pop out of nowhere, right? You know, and and it's. When you look into early Christian history, one thing that's quite evident is that there was a lot of diversity in early Christian history. They, all early Christians did not believe the same thing. They didn't acknowledge the same authorities. They didn't have the same theology. Um, and uh, But the one thing they all agreed on was that there was a guy named Jesus. They radically disagreed about who he was and what he meant and his significance to their lives and what his teaching was. But they all agreed on the fact that there was such a person, right? So the evidence for the existence of Jesus is uh, is— I mean, it's it's much stronger than the evidence for the existence of, say, Socrates, right? Now we only we only know of Socrates from the writings of his followers, Plato in particular. Yeah, um, uh, he didn't write anything himself, right? But uh, I don't know anybody doubts the existence of the historical Socrates. Yeah. Um, we don't have anything from the pen of uh, of Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha. And in fact, the earliest documentary evidences for Buddhism are a good you know three to four centuries after the time in which the historical Buddha was supposed to have mm. lived. And yet, mm. I don't think anybody doubts, I haven't heard anybody call into question the reality of Siddhartha Gautama, even yeah. though the, 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 the paper trail is a lot thinner on, on Siddhartha than it is for Jesus. So, you know, compared to any other historical figure in similar circumstances, um, you know, people don't, um, people don't doubt their existence. Why would you call Jesus' existence into doubt when there's so much evidence that there was such a person? Sure. Mark, uh, thanks so much for your call from Houston. And by the way, if you want to uh, play the podcast for your friend there, uh, you would want to go to EWTN.com, click on the word radio, and then look for the words Podcast Central. Once you're there, they're in alphabetical order, all the shows A to Z. Scroll down a little bit, you'll see Call to Communion, and you can get the podcast for today's program. Thanks so much for your call. Here is another Mark. This Mark is in Maumee, Ohio, listening on the great Annunciation Radio. Hey there, Mark. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, I'd like to know, uh, what about the uh, rapture? Is yeah. that is that part of our Catholic faith? I appreciate the question. It is no part of our Catholic faith. Nope. No rapture. Absolutely <laughs> not. Okay? Bad, bad, bad. Do not want to go there. Um, so the, the idea of the rapture, and, and let's be clear— by the rapture, we do not mean simply the idea that Christ will come back at the end of time and that believers will, will be gathered up to him in the clouds. I mean, that's, that's a biblical teaching, and Catholics believe that. We yes. believe that, you know, we're all going to go, you know, cloud sailing <clears throat> one day. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's a Catholic belief. The, the, the Protestant doctrine of the rapture is much more involved than that. The Protestant idea of the rapture is that Jesus is going to come back and establish an earthly kingdom from Jerusalem uh, in which, that will last a thousand years, in which Old Testament prophecies about the coming kingdom of God will be literally fulfilled. 
And so if Isaiah says, for example, that camels laden with gold and spices will be led into Jerusalem and that foreign kings will be led in train and, you know, that the, the people of God will triumph over them, then that means that they're going to be camels with gold and spices and foreign kings, you know, led in conquest into the streets of Jerusalem where Jesus will reign as a literal monarch over a kingdom. Um, uh, and, and so that, that kind of Old Testament imagery will get worked out in this thousand-year reign of Jesus. And they, another aspect of the story is that they think that the, the offer of salvation that Christ gave to the Jews, this is the rapture people, mm-hmm. um, was based on kind of radical obedience to the Mosaic law. Now, and we Catholics would tend to agree with that much of the assessment, um, that the Jews rejected that message and that, therefore, St. Paul offered a different gospel message to Gentiles. And so there's a, the, the rapture people place a significant distinction between the preaching of the historical Jesus and the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles and the offer of salvation by allegedly faith alone. Now, um, understanding that, um, that there's a distinction there, they kind of draw these hard lines between historical periods— um, and they call them dispensations. They recognize that the dispensation, as they would call it, of the church that's characterized by grace and faith doesn't look like the dispensation of law that they would associate with the Old Testament or the ministry of Jesus. And so they, but it, and nor does it look like the kind of reign of righteousness that will come at the end of time. So they actually have this idea that the church is a kind of parenthesis in the divine plan. And that language explicitly is used. You'll find writers that talk about the church as a parenthesis, and an inconvenient one. And so they invent a way to remove the church from space and time, to get it out of the historical time stream, so that you can have a great persecution and bring this very Hebraic, law-abiding, righteous kingdom in at the end of time. And the way they've come up with getting the church out of the historical time stream is this idea of the rapture. So Jesus allegedly will come back secretly, even though the scriptures say nothing of that, and he'll gather up Christians, true Christians, take them to heaven for seven years, during which time he'll pour out his wrath upon the earth. Then he'll come back at the end of time with the church and set up this historical kingdom. So that's the whole view. That's the rapture theology altogether. It's nowhere in the Bible— it's nowhere in the tradition, um, and uh, and it tends to make people, in my judgment, irrational about things like geopolitical events because it it because so much of it hinges on the destiny of the nation state of Israel. Uh, dispensationalists tend to have a very otherworldly view and an idealistic view of things like Middle Eastern conflict, and uh, and a kind of knee-jerk Zionism that doesn't really take account of the historical realities on the ground. So it has a lot of deleterious, pernicious effects Mm -hmm. in people's personality. Also, expecting Christ to come zap you out of space and time at any second has led different dispensational sects over the years to do things like empty their bank accounts and and put up billboards saying the end is near and then go stand on the top of mountaintops waiting for Jesus to come back and then to be disappointed when they still have to pay their mortgages the next month, right? That that kind of thing has happened a number of times. And I've known of more than one case of young children um, who would come home or go to class or something and find that there was no one there and become petrified with fear at the idea that 
the rapture had occurred and they were left behind, right? And so it traumatizes people as well. So it's a very harmful doctrine, in my judgment, deeply unbiblical, not at all traditional, not even believed by most Protestants, certainly not believed by the original Protestants of the Reformation. Catholic Church rejects all of that stuff as being superstitious. All right. And Mark, thanks so much uh, for your call today here on Call to Communion on EWTN. Uh, We have, uh, from time to time, talked about EWTN missionaries. What are we talking about when we when we mention EWTN media missionaries? What is that? Well, an EWTN media, media missionary is someone who prayerfully takes EWTN to parishes and the community through print and electronic media that we provide absolutely free. You can help EWTN share the good news by becoming a media missionary yourself. Visit this website to find out what we're talking about here, EWTN missionaries. EWTNmissionaries.com. Join us in sharing the eternal word with the world. Uh, Quick question here that we received uh, on the phone just a few minutes ago. This came from Christian right here in Birmingham, who called and said, Dr. Andrews, I sat in on a Bible study of James with some Protestant friends. They kept dismissing me as an Arminian. What is that? Who was Arminius? Yes, yes. This is the worst kind of anachronism possible to call you a Catholic and Arminian. And it shows that your Protestant friends, are um, they, uh, they don't know their own tradition nearly well enough. So Jacob Arminius was a Dutch theologian in the Reformed tradition. He was part of the Reformed Church of Holland in okay. the 17th century, mm-hmm. who, who rejected several tendencies— in the emerging Calvinist orthodoxy of his day. In particular, he rejected the idea that people are totally depraved so that they have no capacity to do any moral good. He rejected the idea that God's election is unconditional. That is to say that if God chooses that you're going to be saved, there ain't nothing you can do about it. Or for that matter, if God chooses you're going to be damned, there ain't nothing you can do about it. He rejected that idea. Um, he rejected the doctrine of the limited atonement. This was a Calvinist idea that Jesus did not die for everyone, but only for the elect. He rejected the doctrine of irresistible grace. Um, he thought you could resist grace. And he rejected the idea that having once received grace, you would necessarily persevere to the end. He rejected those ideas that were emerging in Calvinist orthodoxy. And uh, and uh, that offended a lot of people, and so the Dutch Reformed Church called a synod, a group um, called the Synod of Dort in 1618, and they articulated what would become known as the five points of Calvinism, namely the positions that Arminius repudiated, total okay. depravity, unlimited uh, election, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And, uh, and so hence, f- from that point on, Protestants, you can't, there's no such thing as a Catholic Arminian. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It's like talking about a Protestant Dominican. It doesn't make <laughs> sense, right? Uh, from that point on, an, an, an Arminian in the world of Protestantism is a Protestant who rejects those specific Catholic, excuse me, those specific Calvinist doctrines, but otherwise is Protestant. So, I mean, Arminius continued to believe in things like the, the sole authority of the Bible. Uh-huh. He believed in justification by faith. Uh, he believed in reformed ecclesiology and had a reformed understanding of the sacraments. He just rejected those specific Calvinist theses that relate ultimately to the doctrine of predestination. So you are not an Arminian because you are not a Protestant. Cal- Catholic can't be an Arminian. Now, uh, Catholics think that Arminius was better than Calvin on a lot of things uh-huh. because 
we also, Catholics, also reject those, those Calvinistic positions, mm-hmm. but for reasons very different than Arminius rejected them. So we're not Arminians, we're Catholics. You okay. could say, well, dismiss me, dismiss me, but dismiss me as a Catholic, not an Arminian. <laughs> okay, very good. And uh, thanks so much for checking in with the program today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Chet now, a first-time caller in Marlboro, Massachusetts, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Chet, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, I was listening to the previous uh, explanation about uh, the evidence of Jesus uh, actually being uh, having existed. And uh, but I was curious though that the um, that I I was under the impression that Jesus was a Greek name and that his real name was actually Joshua. I thought Jesus was Greek for uh, the Hebrew word Joshua, and that everybody was named Joshua. So how could you? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there might be, but. Uh, it, it would make it difficult, I would think, to go through whatever has been written to be able to say uh, it was that Jesus of Nazareth, say, uh, or Joshua of Nazareth. I don't know if that's... Okay, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate the question. So, first of all, yes, Jesus is simply the, the, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Joshua. As to how common the name Joshua was in first century Palestine, I couldn't say. I'm not sure I understand the rest of your question. It strikes me as a non sequitur. I mean, for example, there are a lot of people named Donald. I don't see how that would make it difficult for me to establish the historical existence of Donald Trump. <laughs> or there are a lot of people named Joe. Why would that make it questionable that there was a person named Joe Biden? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't see how the, the, it being a common name. When a specific Joshua was was singled out in in the tradition as a as the source and origin um, because he left specific followers who were associated with a tradition that of that was continually handed on and and recorded in texts like I don't know why there being more than one person named Joshua would would call the existence of one of them into question uh, Chet does that make sense to you uh, yeah so you're you're basically using the uh, the gospels as the evidence, because they're writing about that specific Joshua. Well, the Gospels are some of the evidence for the historical Jesus. They're not, they're not the only evidence, but there's some of it, yeah. Okay. Chet, thanks so much for your call today. It's called to Communion here on EWTN. Lou is in St. Louis listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hey there, Lou, what's on your mind today? Oh, greetings. Thanks for speaking with me today. Um, I wonder what Dr. Anders would have to say about the view of Eric Metaxas that uh, Martin Luther was the man who rediscovered God and changed the world in the sense that he removed uh, society or made it possible for society to be removed from the tyrannical control of the Roman Catholic Church and made democracy as we know it today possible. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, first of all, let's let's start with the claim that Luther rediscovered God. Um, in in 1525, Luther had a dispute with the Catholic apologist and Renaissance scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam, and the dispute was about whether or not humans have free will. And Erasmus defended the notion that humans have free will, and Luther disputed the notion, said humans do not have free will. And he didn't really care if you had free will to play pool or not, or, you know, or whether or not to order pepperoni on your pizza. 
he wanted to know whether you had the kind of freedom that would be morally relevant to the question of salvation. You know, whether you could be held accountable for your actions in a way that could either justify or condemn you. And Luther's position was that you couldn't, that you were, that you were utterly bound in your will, and so that salvation was a completely gratuitous act of God from start to finish, and God simply elects certain souls to save, not by the transformation of their moral life, but uh-huh. simply by imputing the status of righteous to them, and the rest of the world he leaves damned, and there isn't anything they can do about it. And that struck Erasmus, as it strikes most people, as unjust. I mean, how could God create human beings that have no possibility of salvation because he's decreed otherwise, and then hold them accountable for sins that they were not able to resist, and then punish them for all eternity. That would seem to be, uh, that would seem to be unjust. And Luther's response to Erasmus was, well, you're applying human categories to understanding God. And in fact, not only is God's justice beyond human rationalization, but it, it, in principle, must be beyond human rationalization, and that if it were intelligible, it would not be God, that the, that the notion of God implies not just ineffability, not just mystery, but absurdity, right? That it, it must actually confound human ideas of rationality. Uh, Luther said in another place that reason is a whore and the worst enemy of truth, okay? Now— why am I telling you the story? Because the God that Luther was positing, I don't think exists. So he discovered, he rediscovered something, but it was more like the Gnostic demiurge, an evil God, an evil God who, who thwarted the ends of human rationality and flourishing, and a view of salvation utterly disconnected from human life or the moral life or from the physical universe at all, with no continuity between this world of, of, uh, of moral striving and the next life. So I, I think Luther discovered something all right, but I think it was a rediscovery of Manichaeism, mm. not God, because the Catholic view of God is that God is the first principle, the, 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 the you know, primo principio, okay? And, and what we mean by that is that from which all things proceed, uh, the, it, it, most especially the rational order of the universe, including the rational order of human morality. And so Bonaventure, a uh, great Catholic mystic and theologian, said the world is a ladder ascending to God, deep continuity between our rational experience of the world and the God that we discover at the top of that hierarchy. Luther could never have said any such thing. And so there's a dispute, not just about the order of the moral life, but the identity of God. So I, I would really dispute the charge that Luther rediscovered God. I think Luther f- fundamentally lost God, lost touch with who God is, uh, the first principle of, of reality and the source of all things good, true, and beautiful that can be rationally understood. So I don't think he rediscovered God. Um, is there a connection between the Protestant Reformation and the advent of democracy? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not monocausational. In other words, it's not as though the Protestant Reformation is the only antecedent Hmm. to modernity or to modern political life. Um, Nor is it true that Luther was the only hope for freedom from tyranny. Um, Resistance to tyranny was a well-established part of the Catholic tradition 
Um, a scholar like Stephen Osmond uh, writes a book, uh, The Age of Reform, 1250 to 1550, underscoring that the movement for social reform, for political reform, um, is a Catholic movement that predates Luther by 300 years. Luther himself was drawing on Catholic intellectual uh, predecessors in order uh -huh. to make some of his arguments. Now, he took them sometimes in directions that they wouldn't have wanted to go. Uh, Brad Gregory of Notre Dame wrote a book called The Unintended Reformation that deals very much with that thesis. So was Lutheranism, was Calvinism a source for modern democracy? To be sure, but not the only source. Okay. Uh, Lou, thanks so much for your call from St. Louis. A uh, quick question here from Miriam, who's watching us today on YouTube. Miriam says, why should a person become a consecrated virgin? I am currently in RCIA and am interested in becoming one once I'm a Catholic. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, first of all, if you are interested in becoming a consecrated virgin, my, my counsel would be that you not do it as soon as you've become Catholic. You, you ought to give it a good seven years in Catholic life before you make a major vocational decision like that, because it's, you know, it's one of those things like getting married. You're not going to go back from it. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, you would—consecrated virginity is an honored state of life in the Church. It goes back all the way to sacred scripture. It goes back to within the New Testament. St. Paul talks about the order of widows mm -hmm. that are better off if they don't marry again and to consecrate themselves to Jesus. And it's it's a it's a it's a way uh, with ecclesial approval and 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 for the sake of the common good of setting yourself apart as the bride of Christ. So mm. it's similar to being a nun, except you're just kind of a nun on your own rather than living in a community. Um, and that's why, because you want to preserve your virginity for the sake of Jesus, make that sacrifice, and live a life of prayer and penance and, and service to others. Um, I would also say that that if you feel interested in consecrated life, consecrated virginity on your own is an exception, you know, to a more general rule of consecrated life. Uh -huh. Before you decide on consecrated virginity, make sure you're not called to live in a religious community, uh -huh. right? So first rule out, you know, becoming a nun or a consecrated religious, uh, you know, consecrated sister. Uh -huh. Rule those options out so that you know that it's going to be living alone virginity that you're after rather than just consecrated life in general. Miriam, thanks for uh, checking us out today on YouTube. We hope that's helpful for you. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. And you can check out uh, the podcast by going to EWTN.com. Click on Radio and then click on Podcast Central. On behalf of our great team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Andrews. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. God bless.